0: You're listening to Nonprofit Confidential, episode number 16. Hey there, welcome back to Nonprofit Confidential. This podcast is brought to you by Third Suite, which offers a suite of courses and consulting services that strengthen the nonprofit sector. My name is Sheila Nimishikavi. I'm the founder of Third Suite and the host of this podcast. And this podcast is specifically dedicated to helping you build an exceptional nonprofit organization that creates real change in the community. On this show, I share many trainings as well as interviews with nonprofit talent who shared their compelling stories and offer excellent advice from working in the field. Before we hop into today's episode, I'm really excited to share a new free resource that Third Suite offers, which is an online book club. Third Suite's book club is a virtual book club, so that means you can join no matter where you are in the world. We'll discuss a new book each month that is relevant to our field. And we'll share our thoughts and open up conversations all inside of our private Facebook group. And this book club is for you. So if there are books you want to read or certain topics that you're passionate about or even problems you're just trying to work through, bring them to the group. We can all learn together, weigh in, and ultimately build stronger organizations. So if you're interested and want to join our private online book club, just head over to bookclub.thirdsuite.com. Okay, so let's jump right into today's episode. So you know how sometimes so many people say the same thing that we all think it's true, but really it's a complete myth. Like our parents always said, if you go out in the cold without a jacket, you'll catch a cold. But later on in life, you realize that's totally untrue. A cold is a virus, so you get sick when you catch that virus from another person. If you go out in the cold without a jacket, you'll just be cold and miserable. Just like these little tales are pervasive in our personal lives, there are also a lot of myths circulating within nonprofits. And I don't just mean myths circulating about nonprofits by people outside of the field, like nonprofits don't make a profit, but I mean myths circulating by those of us in the field. So today we're going to debunk five of these common myths. Let's start with one of my favorites nonprofit budgets should net zero. This is completely false. And perhaps this myth stems from the idea that nonprofits shouldn't make a profit, but organizations will often start their budgeting process by aiming to net zero, so the income and expenses for the year will be equal. What's interesting is that in many for-profit companies, they essentially have the same starting point for their budgets. The difference is that they'll start from a target profit and work backward from there, whereas many nonprofits will start from zero, put together their expected expenses, and then budget their income to make up for those expenses. Budgeting to net zero has several problems associated with it. But most importantly, if you're not strategizing and budgeting to make a surplus, there's no funds to contribute to a reserve account or a rainy day fund to help the nonprofit stay in business during challenging times. We all know that funding can be pulled out at any moment. So having reserve funds to pull from in an emergency truly is critical. But If you spend all the income you make each year, you won't be able to plan to build a reserve. Instead, it kind of just becomes something the nonprofit contributes to when it can. Like maybe you got a really big surprise gift or had an unexpected cut in expenses and ended up with a surplus at the end of the year. But it's not really strategy, it's wishful thinking. So you can budget to make a surplus in a given year, which is what I would recommend, but you can also budget strategically for a deficit. If you know your nonprofit is in a phase of rapid programmatic growth, that's not necessarily backed by set funding, but is mission critical. It's okay to plan for a deficit. The important thing is for there to be enough money in the bank and cash flow to keep the doors open and the nonprofit running. Another time you might budget for a deficit would be if you received funds in one fiscal year, but will be spending those funds down in the next fiscal year. So let me give you an example of what I mean by this. Let's say a generous donor gave your organization $5,000 specifically to purchase laptops for the staff. The money came in at the tail end of one fiscal year, but the purchase for the laptops won't actually occur until the next fiscal year. You wouldn't want a net zero budget in this case, because that would mean you had to raise another $5,000 in the fiscal year during which you bought the laptops, but you already received the money. So your budget would show a deficit, but it's not really like your nonprofit lost money. So myth busted, nonprofit budgets do not have to net zero. Another myth that is really commonly shared among nonprofits is that in-kind donations aren't as valuable as cash, or I guess not as desirable as cash. And this isn't necessarily the case. There are many instances in which in-kind gifts have the same net effect on your financials as cash would. So for instance, let's use our laptop example again. If you're raising money to buy laptops and you're going to spend the total you raise on the computers, the net effect on your budget will be zero. So the money comes into your organization, but then it's spent on the laptops. If on the other hand, let's say Apple generously decides to donate the laptops to your organization, the net effect on your budget is still zero. So the money didn't come in and it didn't go out, but you still got the laptops. And there are some added benefits of in-kind gifts. So first off, they can be easier to ask donors for. Donors are often a lot more willing to give a gift in-kind. It's a very tangible impact the donor can feel and really put their name on it, so it feels good for the donor. And this is definitely true for companies and smaller businesses who may not have it in their budget to give cash when you ask, but could provide gifts in-kind. And it's also an easier ask for a first-time donor or a way to get your foot in the door with corporations if you want to eventually ask them for corporate sponsorships. Another reason in-kind can be good is that rather than repeatedly tapping into your donor pool for funding and running the risk of donor fatigue, when you get these types of needs met in other ways, that frees up your funding for expenses that you can't get in-kind, like staff, or um, you know rent, things like that. Now, of course, there really is a limit to what value in-kind gifts provide. So we often hear about nonprofits with loads of clothing donated, but that really doesn't help the organization. So what I'm talking about here are really gifts that save the organization money. So things like pro bono legal counsel or technology, it's expenses you would have had to pay for anyway, But now you're getting them in kind, so the the net on your budget is zero, but you still get the benefit of the service or the, the product that you need. Okay, on to myth number three, people give to people. So this one is kind of a half myth. So people are definitely much more likely to give to organizations that they are introduced to through friends, this is why peer to peer fundraising campaigns like walks are so successful. This is also why it's so important for board members to fundraise because it's a major method of getting new donors into the organization. But this becomes a myth when the saying, people give to people, is misinterpreted to mean that fundraisers should bring their networks with them. So when a fundraiser moves from one nonprofit to a new nonprofit, The misperception is that they should bring their quote unquote list because their donors give to them. But there is no list that fundraisers have that they can bring with them from one nonprofit to the next. And besides that, it's quite unethical to do that. So while a donor might give to a nonprofit because they know the person who asked them to give a gift, they continue to give because they value the work that the organization does. So if the new nonprofit this fundraiser goes to isn't aligned with what the donor values and the impact they want to have, it doesn't matter who asks them. The donor isn't likely to become a significant giver of this new organization. So along the same lines, uh, the idea that people give to people becomes a myth when we take into consideration donor retention. So a donor might have given because of who initially asked for the gift But to retain the donor in the long run, they really need to connect with the mission of your organization. So there's going to be drop off from those gifts that board members bring into the organization and all of the donors that gave in, you know, peer to peer fundraising, because maybe they don't feel strongly about the organization, but they gave because a friend asked them to. But if the friend doesn't ask, they won't give. So they aren't really your donors, if that makes sense. They're not tied to the organization. So the myth that people give to people is kind of a half-truth. Yes, initially they give to the person who asks, but in the long run, they really are giving because they're tied to the organization and feel strongly about it. Okay, on to the next myth. The fourth myth is another one of my favorites, and this is successful business people can offer great advice for nonprofits. Success in the for-profit world doesn't necessarily mean that this person can help solve nonprofit issues or even that their strategies will work within nonprofits in general. Now, personally, I've experienced this in my work with nonprofits where organizations will, for example, recruit a successful investor to serve as the treasurer of the organization. But being successful in the stock market does not mean this person automatically knows nonprofit finance. These are two completely different fields, and it takes time to understand the differences between nonprofit and for-profit financials and how the analysis differs. Now, of course, if this successful investor also has years of nonprofit board experience, then that's just perfect. But my point is that people who are successful in for-profit companies or in their specific field will not automatically translate that success to the nonprofit world right away. They need nonprofit experience and they need to learn the ropes. All right, the fifth myth that we have to consider is that cybersecurity is only an issue that for-profit companies need to worry about. Many nonprofits handle incredibly sensitive information. Whether you're working at a community-based health organization that can literally have patient data, or you work at a museum and have donors that want to keep their gifts private, nonprofits truly are responsible for a lot of private information. Part of being a good steward of donor funding and a good community partner in general is the ability to guarantee that information that should be kept private is safe. While we hear these stories about big companies that have their credit card information hacked into and you know, we think to ourselves, well, that's a problem for big companies, I think we really need to come to terms with the fact that nonprofits play a much bigger game than we give ourselves credit for too many nonprofits have subpar cybersecurity measures in place. So just to clarify, what would be considered a subpar security measure? So something like writing the password for your nonprofit and taping it to the computer so you can log in easily, or having a sheet of paper with all of the passwords on it that you can reference whenever you need to log into accounts. And I've seen a lot of people who kind of like just use like a thumbtack and Push this into the wall, so the passwords are out there for everyone to see. Not so good. Just four years ago, the Urban Institute's National Center for Charitable Statistics had a huge security breach when the Form 990 filing system was hacked into. And just last year, Save the Children Federation's email was hacked into, and they were actually fooled into sending about a million dollars to a fake project. This is a big deal. The Nonprofit Technology Network did a survey of about 20 nonprofit organizations to determine what the state of cybersecurity is for nonprofits. And I'll link to this in the show notes, but they found that about 68% of organizations did not have documented policies and procedures in the event of a cyber attack. And less than half of the organizations could respond yes to the question, do you have policies which clearly define which data collected are considered personally identified, identifiable information? And person, personally identifiable information includes home address, social security numbers, credit card numbers, all things that nonprofits collect. So we have some work to do in this area. And, you know, while the majority of nonprofits are not going to be able to afford to have a full-blown IT department who can perform internal audits, there are some steps that we can take to get closer to best practices. And there's even cybersecurity insurance offered now for nonprofits, so there's a way to protect your organization in the worst-case scenario. Okay, so I know I said we were only going to talk about five myths, but there's one more that we absolutely need to bust. So I'm going to throw it in and let's call it a bonus. This myth is that strategic plans can't be changed during the time frame that they cover. So if your strategic plan is for the next, say, three years, and within the first year, you recognize some changes in the internal or external environment of your nonprofit, the myth perpetuates this idea that you can't go back and make edits to the document. But that's a total myth. You can and should update your strategic plan as you need to, or else you'll have to keep justifying why, why you're not following through on the plan. So let me give you an example. Remember when, think back to when the Affordable Care Act was passed. There were so many nonprofits that were advocating for access to health care for years, And their constituents in a short time would actually have access to this care. So now, almost overnight, these organizations had to rethink their strategic focus. So perhaps now, instead of advocating for access, now they need a pivot and their work actually entails helping their constituents work their way through the application and the online portal. But that's a shift away from advocacy and toward providing a service. So in the last episode, episode 15, I talked about different frameworks for strategic plans that allow for more flexibility. So rather than outlining every step of a strategic plan with action items and assigned roles, these stay more high level so you can pivot and shift your actions as needed. So one way to look at this myth is to use one of these frameworks to create a more flexible strategic plan. But if that doesn't work for your organization, or leadership would prefer the traditional method of strategic planning, then the plan itself needs to be revisited during the time frame that it covers. The, the strategic plan truly is a decision-making tool, so it needs to be assessed from the viewpoint of whether it can serve that purpose. Once the, the strategic plan isn't relevant or no longer serves that decision-making tool function, then it needs to be changed, even if it is in the middle of the period for that strategic plan. Luckily, there really is no hard and fast rule preventing us from doing that. If your organization posts its strategic plan on your website and gives it to stakeholders, you can still change your plan. You would just inform the audience that due to an unforeseen change, a new strategic plan is needed. Okay. So today we've covered six myths that have worked their way through nonprofits and are a hindrance to creating exceptional impact, but I'm sure there are more. I really encourage you to think about what myths have become, you know, a part of your organization and you've come across them frequently to the point that they're almost dogma within your organization, but really they could use some questioning. And a great way to learn more about the nonprofit sector, as well as where some of these myths originated, is to look at studies and read about the nonprofit sector. And what better way to do that than to join Third Suite's book club, like my not-so-subtle pitch? (laughs) Really though, it's a great way to not only learn more within a supportive community, but also to talk through some of these hard and fastened rules that we set within our own organizations. Some of these myths truly originate because one person said it, passed it on to the next, and then that person told their staff, and it just grew from there. When we stop to look at research, though, sometimes we find out that what we took to be dogma is actually untrue. So join Third Suite's book club. I promise you won't regret it. For more information, links, and show notes for today's episode, please head over to thirdsuite.com forward slash 16. And while you're there, simply click on the link to join Third Suite's book club or visit bookclub.thirdsuite.com. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really, really, really appreciate it. I will talk to you next week.